Heavenly Father, um, we praise you for your word, that it is good and that it does not return empty, um, but um, can do amazing things in the hearts of all who hear it. And so we pray that you would do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in college, I remember learning the story of a famous alumna of my university named Amy Beale. 25 years ago, in 1993, Amy had graduated from college. She was living in South Africa, where she was studying and working as an activist against apartheid, which was South Africa's version of segregation and Jim Crow. In those years, South Africa was in the midst of its transition from apartheid to democracy. There was political unrest and political violence as the country's black majority demanded an end to 50 years of white minority rule. And it wasn't at all clear how things were going to turn out. It was in that context that on August 25th, 1993, Amy's life was cut short. She was driving three friends home when a mob pulled her from her car and stabbed and stoned her to death. She was a white woman caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, a victim of nearly half a century of racial frustration and anger boiled over onto the city streets that day. Four people were convicted of Amy's murder. Five years later, in 1998, all four were pardoned by South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and they were released. They were released with the support and the blessing of Amy's parents. Amy's parents went on to found the Amy Beale Foundation Trust, a nonprofit which focused on developing and empowering youth in those very same neighborhoods. Most amazingly, at least to me, they employed two of the men convicted of Amy's murder at the organization. This story knocked me over every time I heard it. Years before I became a Christian, I wondered how these two grieving parents could find it in their hearts to do such a thing. And looking back, I think I can see that even then, God was using it to point me to something bigger. But whether we're Christians or not, the world is fascinated by forgiveness. If you Google stories of forgiveness, you will find dozens of articles and lists of examples of mercy and reconciliation. You can even go to a website, The Forgiveness Project, that collects and catalogs some of the most prominent examples. All of these stories are inspiring, but most of them, as they're told, leave us with a number of unanswered questions. Is forgiveness only supposed to be an extraordinary thing? So extraordinary that it gets highlighted on a website like that? Is the point of these stories to make it a more everyday thing? Are these stories the model? Perhaps more um, challenging, does forgiveness mean life without consequences? How do we feel, for example, about shortening the sentences of people who have committed murder? Would we do that for all murderers? So when I read a story like this, what does it mean I'm supposed to do tomorrow? If you're visiting with us this morning, you find us in the middle of a sermon series that we're calling Being the Church. We've explored in recent weeks some foundational teaching about what the church is, and now we're exploring the practical implications of that. And we're doing that by going through a series of sermons on what are called the one another passages. 
Those are a series of passages that call on Christians to do different things for one another. Today, as you might have guessed, we're talking about forgiveness, the command to Christians to forgive one another. This command actually shows up in a few places, but today we're going to anchor our thinking on Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. Um, If you're using the Bibles that have been provided here, uh, that look like this, you can find that on page 978 of those Bibles. Um, And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, someone will bring one of these to you, um, and we would love for you to take this home as our gift to you. Um, So let's go ahead and read Ephesians 4, 31 to 32 together. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Notice here that we're commanded to forgive one another in a particular way. We're to forgive one another as, which is another way of saying, we're to forgive one another the same way that God in Christ forgave us. Forgive one another the same way that God in Christ forgave us. So that raises three questions, which I hope for us to think through today as we consider this verse. Question one, how exactly did Christ forgive us? How did he do it? What exactly does it mean to do it like him? Number two, what is forgiveness? What is forgiveness? And number three, with this in mind, how should we forgive one another? So, what did Christ do? What is forgiveness? How should we forgive each other? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's take that first question. How exactly did Christ forgive us? What's the model that he demonstrates for us? To build our understanding for this, I hope to do two things. First, I want to summarize the work of Jesus Christ. And second, I want to summarize how Paul uses that work to build his argument in the book of Ephesians leading up to our verse. Both of those, I think, will be instructive for us. So what did Christ do? What do we mean when we say that Christ has forgiven us? To understand that, we need to understand the gospel, the good news that every Christian believes. As Christians, we believe, we know that God created everything. The heavens, the earth, the seas, the stars, the animals, and of course, us, people. He created us to rule the earth on his behalf. He created us to rule under his leadership, which means being obedient to his commands. But then we disobeyed God. In Genesis 2, God commanded Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve ate the fruit of that tree, and they broke their relationship with God. The Bible calls this disobedience sin deliberate rebellion against God. Adam's and Eve's disobedience set the pattern for the whole human race. We are made in God's image, which means we're made to obey him. We understand what right and wrong is. We're even capable of very good things sometimes. But our nature, introduced on that day by Adam and Eve, is to sin, to rebel against God. Sometimes that means actively disobeying God. Sometimes, That means simply ignoring him or pretending that he doesn't exist. This is a problem. God is perfectly good. And for this reason, all sin, big or small, will be punished by him. That punishment is eternal separation from God in this life and after we die. 
So this raises a question. It's the great paradox of scripture. How can a perfectly good God be reconciled to an imperfect, sinful people? And praise God, the answer is the work of Jesus Christ. There are many places in the Bible you can go to to summarize what Christ did, but perhaps one of the best summaries is just on the next page of that Bible, page 980 in Philippians 2. So if you want to flip over there real briefly, it's not far away, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 10. Paul writes to the Philippians this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let's break that down. Verse five, Christ Jesus was in the form of God. That is to say, Jesus Christ is God. But verse six, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus became a human being. And when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate that event, the incarnation of God himself being born as a human being. Christ then lived a life of perfect obedience to God. The only human life ever lived in perfect obedience. The only sinless life ever. He was so obedient, verse 8, that he was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. The specific story here is important. Christ was convicted of crimes he did not commit and was executed through crucifixion. So when the one sinless man who had ever lived was punished, he bore on himself the price that all the rest of us would otherwise have had to pay for our sins against God. He could bear this price because he was God and because he was sinless. He sacrificed himself in our place so that all those who trust in his sacrifice might be freed from sin, might be forgiven, might be finally reconciled to the God we have rebelled against. Amen. And verse nine, to show that this sacrifice had in fact worked, he was resurrected three days later. That's what we celebrate on Easter. God has exalted him, it says here, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. In other words, Christ was resurrected and has now returned to his rightful place as God of the universe, ruling over everything. So if we believe this gospel, we are to trust him by repenting of our sins against God asking him for the forgiveness he offers in Christ and obeying Christ's commands. And that's what it says in verse 10. The whole purpose of this is so that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So if you're a Christian, this is what you believe. It's the thing that unites all Christians. Your whole life is defined by it. I want to take a moment here um, and speak to those of you who may not be Christians. If you're, if you're here today, you're not a Christian, or maybe you've always thought of yourself as a Christian, 
but what I've just said seems new to you, I would encourage you to think about it. Do you believe there's a God? And if so, what do you think you owe that God? Do you think you're being obedient to him? And if you're not being obedient, how can you get right with God? How can you be forgiven? As Jesus Christ himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, that is to God, no one comes to the Father except through me. That way is open to you today. You can repent of your sins today, trust in Christ, and find a new life in him. If you want to know more about that, you can speak to anyone who's a member here, anyone who's saying amen, or uh, to me afterwards. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a Christian. The rest of this sermon will really explore some of the implications of what Christ has done for us, what it means for why we become members of a church, why we join a church, how we are to imitate Christ in the way we treat each other as members of a church. So, for those of us who are Christians, we preach this same gospel every Sunday right here. What does it specifically have to do with our text today? Well, Ephesians 4.32 says, to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. So this is the forgiveness Paul is talking about, Christ's sacrifice on the cross. He literally laid down his life and paid the debt for our sins so that we might be forgiven. That is how we should strive to forgive others. And we will spend the rest of this sermon trying to unpack what that means. But this work of Christ isn't just the model for how we're to forgive one another. It also underpins the reason we are to forgive one another, because we are united to one another as a church through Christ. This is one of the biggest themes of the book of Ephesians as a whole. To see this, turn the page one page back to Ephesians chapter two. That's part of the run-up to our verse today. So beginning in chapter two, Paul reminds us, we were once dead in our sins, but God loved us anyway right? Verses four to five, he made us alive together with Christ and he raised us with Christ when Christ was resurrected. That's how that forgiveness is accomplished. Then look at verse 11. Paul has said that God has blessed us and he saved us. What has been the impact of that on our day-to-day lives? Well, he says, verse 11, remember that once upon a time we were separated from Christ and as such, we were separated from each other. But now, through Christ's work, we are united with Christ, and we are united with each other. So have a look at verse 19 in particular. You can read this with me. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this is an important verse. It touches on the core themes of the book and of this whole sermon series. Christ, by his action, has reconciled all of creation to himself and to God And Christ has united people from all nations to himself and to one another in his church. The metaphor here is a building. Christ is literally the cornerstone of that church. 
as Christians, the only thing we are guaranteed to have in common is that we are forgiven by Christ and that we've promised to obey him and to follow his commands. So in Christ, we're bound together. This gives us special obligations to one another that we didn't have before. In a sense, this is the basis of today's one another, but it's really the basis of all the one another's that we're talking about in this series. Christ is the basis. His knitting us together into a church body, his death and resurrection is the basis. So Christ's work then is the model for how we should forgive each other. And by binding us together as a church, it's also the reason we should forgive each other. It's in that context that starting in chapter four, Paul pivots from explaining what Christ has done and how he's built us into a church to what it means for us. It's in this section of the book that the command in verse 32 is given. Let's read it again, starting in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. So Christ provides the example of what forgiveness looks like. In the book of Ephesians, he gives us one reason to forgive, which is that we're now bound together as his church. But here in verse 32, he gives us another more direct reason. We must forgive because we've been forgiven. The parable of the debtor in Matthew 18 demonstrates this clearly. Um, You can find that if you want to read with me on page 824. Um, This is, I think, the last kind of reason that we have for forgiving. So 824, Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 to 35. Jesus tells this parable. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Well, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then Jesus speaks to the audience here. He says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So there are parables that are really mysterious. And then there are parables where Christ just comes out and tells you what it means at the end. Um, Here it is. If we don't forgive others, we will be like this debtor. We will not be worthy of the forgiveness Christ has given us. We must forgive much because we've been forgiven much. So to summarize, what did Christ do? Christ has forgiven us. In forgiving us and calling us to a new life, he has built us into his church. And his forgiveness of us is both the example of what forgiveness should look like and the reason we should forgive. 
So that brings us to our second question. What is forgiveness? What then does it practically look like to forgive? Um, As we start to dig into this, there's one book I'm going to reference throughout this sermon that is particularly helpful on the subject of forgiveness. It's called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Um, I recommend it highly to all of you if you want to delve deeper into this topic. I know it helped me in thinking about this sermon. So what is forgiveness? Let's actually get really specific with that question. Imagine that a person has done something wrong. A person in this church has done something wrong and that it's hurt you. They've sinned against God. They've also sinned against you. Think about what that might look like in your day-to-day relationships in the church. Maybe someone made a promise to you and they never kept it and you haven't spoken about it since. Maybe someone deceived you. They said something that wasn't true and they went on and behaved as if nothing had happened. Maybe in the context of that wonderful political diversity Pastor T talked about last week, You got into a heated argument with someone over politics or over sensitive questions of race. You said some unkind things to each other and you haven't spoken since. Maybe you were dating someone and they stopped returning your calls or your texts. And now it's not just super awkward, it's hurtful too. In that context, in the context of real pain inflicted on you by another human being, What is forgiveness? Well, let's start with the wrong that needs to be forgiven. Any of these sins creates a debt to the person that has been sinned against. There's a debt to God, but there's also a debt to you. So Ken Sandy says something really insightful here. He says, this means you have a choice to make. You can either take payments on the debt or make payments on the debt. You can take or extract payments on a debt from others' sin in many ways. By withholding forgiveness, by dwelling on the wrong, by being cold and aloof, by giving up on the relationship, by inflicting emotional pain, by gossiping, by lashing back, or by seeking revenge against the one who hurt you. These actions may provide a perverse pleasure for the moment, but they exact a high price from you in the long run. So that's one option. But Sandy says there's another way. Your other choice, he says, is to make payments on the debt and thereby release others from penalties that they deserve to pay. Sometimes God will enable you to do this in one easy payment. You decide to forgive, and by God's grace, the debt is quickly and fully canceled in your heart and mind. But when there has been a deep wrong, the debt it creates is not always paid at once. You may need to bear certain effects of the other person's sin over a long period of time. This may involve fighting against painful memories, speaking gracious words when you really want to say something hurtful, working to tear down walls and be vulnerable when you still feel little trust, or even enduring the consequences of a material or physical injury that the other person is unable or unwilling to repair. In other words, forgiveness will cost you. It'll cost you the same way it cost Jesus. But in Christ's strength, we have all that we need to make those payments. Sandy summarizes it this way. He says that forgiveness may be described as a decision to make four promises. Four promises. I'm going to read them. I will come back to them. Promise number one, I will not dwell on this incident. I will not dwell on this incident. Promise number two, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. 
Promise number three, I will not talk to others about this incident. And promise number four, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Forgiveness is an active decision to make these four promises. Now, in defining this, Sandy also says a few important things here about what forgiveness is not. So three things that forgiveness is not. It's not a feeling, it's not forgetting, and it's not excusing. So first of all, forgiveness is not a feeling. He says, it is an act of the will. It's a decision to make those four promises. And we make those decisions regardless of our feelings. So this is our first challenge. You've been wronged by someone in the church. You know in your head that as a Christian, you are called to forgive them. But how many times have you or someone you know said, I'm just waiting for God to work on my heart so I can forgive that person? In other words, I'm waiting for my feelings toward that person to change before I forgive them. But that gets it backwards. If a person has wronged you, how do you feel about them? Not great. And if you do nothing and they do nothing, what's likely to happen to your feelings? They'll get nothing or they'll get worse. So if we wait to forgive until our feelings change, how long are we going to be waiting? Forever. That's right. So in Mark, so in Mark 11, 25, Jesus gives us a really interesting instruction that come, brings to bear on this. It's an instruction about prayer, and yet it has something really profound to say to us about forgiveness. He says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. You can see the echo of our text here, right? Because Christ has forgiven us and continues to forgive us, we should forgive others. But how quickly should we do it? At least as often as we pray, which suggests that we should be pretty quick to forgive, regardless of how we feel. So the decision usually comes first. Feelings come later. So forgiveness is not feelings. Second, Forgiveness is not forgetting. Now, let me unpack that a little bit. We've all probably heard the expression, forgive but never forget. Now, in some circumstances, that can be a false form of forgiveness. I say I forgive you, but not only do I not forget, I actively remember and never stop reminding you of what you did wrong. Every other day is a chance for me to give you a history lesson on what you did wrong. Even if I say the words, I forgive you, that's not really forgiveness. Um, In 1 Corinthians 13, we have that beautiful meditation on what love is. And one of the characteristics of love in verse 4, it says, love keeps no record of wrongs. So on the one hand, forgiving means not holding something against another person. On the other hand, forgiving doesn't mean you have to actively work to forget. It simply means you don't go out of your way to remember. Forgetting takes time. Forgiveness is a decision you can make right now. So 1 Corinthians 13 puts it really well. You keep no record of wrongs. That doesn't mean you don't remember that the wrongs happened. Sometimes you'll need to. You'll need to in order to recognize a pattern of sin um, or to ensure that justice is done. But it just means you don't dwell on what happened. So forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Finally, this is really important, forgiveness is not excusing. Excusing is essentially ignoring the demands of justice, saying, I'm going to pretend that what you did wasn't wrong, 
or I'm going to pretend that you didn't do it at all. But the whole point of forgiveness is that someone did something wrong. That's why forgiveness is even necessary in the first place. And often, though not always, that means that even as forgiveness happens, the person who did something wrong may still have to bear some or all of the consequences. In other words, it may cost you a great deal to forgive someone. It may cost you emotional energy. It may cost you materially. But that doesn't mean that it won't also cost them. Just like with Christ and the cross, he pays the debt of our sins, but we may still have to face the consequences of our sins, at least in the short term. So let me give you a few examples of that. Suppose that I damage your property. I repent. You forgive me. That doesn't mean I shouldn't do everything I can to repay the damage, to make restitution for the harm that I caused you. Likewise, if I gossip about you, after you forgive me, you still have a right to ask me to go back to those I gossiped to and correct the record. Let's think, yes, let's think about this on another level. I'm currently our church's deacon of budget. Suppose we decided we needed a full-time accountant and the church hired me to do the job. For the record, that would be a bad idea. I'm not actually an accountant. Um, But let's assume for now. Suppose the church hired me and then suppose, maybe because I'm not an accountant, that I didn't do a good job. So you can assume Pastor T did everything he could to coach me, to help me, to whip me into shape, but I still wasn't performing. And the church's finances suffered as a result. If I repent, should you all forgive me for not being able to do the job? Yeah. Should you also fire me? Yeah, probably. (laughs) That speaks to a broader point. Forgiveness is not a reason to lower our standards with each other. Whether that is in the context of employment or of service, a good amount of conflict in the church is the result of our failure to keep our promises to each other, to do what we said we were going to do, and to do it sufficiently well. There's nothing unchristian about holding each other accountable for high standards. In fact, because of a wrong view of forgiveness, I worry sometimes that Christians run the risk of treating excellence like it's a bad thing. Or if it's not a bad thing, it's at least a lost art. My wife brings this up whenever we're listening to Christian contemporary music. (laughs) But excellence, or at least a sincere attempt at it, should be a part of our Christian witness. Not because our righteousness is based on our works, but because we're saved so that we might do good works, also in Ephesians, and hopefully do them really well. That's true outside the church, in our lives, and in our workplaces, but it should also be true inside the church. What we do for each other should be at least as good as what we do for the world at large. So, do you run a business where some of your clients might be other members of the church? Maybe you're a home contractor of some kind, or a lawyer, or an accountant. Your service to members of the church should be of the same quality as the service you provide to others. Or are you a member in need of that kind of service? Do you need a realtor or a plumber or someone to fix your car? You're not obligated to use the person at church. Generally for sure, but definitely if you think they're not going to do a good job. This principle also extends to the way that we serve. Have you signed up to serve in childcare? Well then, for starters, show up when you say you will. 
show up early even, and show up faithfully and well. Put as much preparation into your teaching that day as you would into a really important task you've been given at work. Our excellence in service to one another shows that we don't take each other's forgiveness for granted. That's a really, really important way that we avoid confusing forgiveness with excusing. One last application here, and this is a more serious one. If someone commits a crime, forgiveness is never an excuse for bypassing our justice system. As many of us will know, the way this has shown up in the news in recent years has been in cases of sexual assault within churches. Here at ARC, we just formalized a policy that makes it abundantly clear crimes like this must be reported to the authorities. Of course, repentance and forgiveness are possible, but with a harm this serious, it's usually not possible to get to that point um, until uh, the facts have been confronted and the legal system is the venue whose authority we recognize to do this. So Romans 13 says, we're to be subject to the governing authorities. If a law enforced by those authorities has been broken, we must report that to those same authorities and submit to those authorities on both consequences and punishment. There's one last question for us to take on about what forgiveness is. What's the relationship of forgiveness to repentance? This may seem obvious. I repent, you forgive me. But what if I'm not repenting? What does it mean for you to forgive me then? What are you obligated to do? Sometimes you can overlook an offense if it's minor enough. You can make all four promises of forgiveness on your own. But what if the sin is a deeper wrong that runs deeper than that? Again, Christ provides the model here. Think about the crucifixion for a moment. Jesus has been wrongly accused. The mob has demanded his death. He's been handed over to be crucified. And before he dies, he says that famous prayer in Luke 23, 34. What is it? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. He prays for forgiveness for those who are at that moment killing him. But who among them has repented at this point? Has anyone? Not yet. And yet, here Jesus is asking for them to be forgiven. He has what Ken Sandy calls an attitude of forgiveness. This is an unconditional thing. It is a commitment we can make to God regardless of what the other person is doing. As Sandy writes, this requires making and living out the first promise of forgiveness, which means that you will not dwell on the hurtful incident or seek vengeance or retribution in thought, word, or action. Instead, you pray for the other person and stand ready at any moment to pursue complete reconciliation as soon as he or she repents. Now, was every last person in the crowd that day forgiven? Probably not. This is because an attitude of forgiveness is not the same thing as granting forgiveness. Granting forgiveness does require the other person's repentance. Who was the first person in the crowd to repent? The thief on the cross, that's right. First person in the crowd to repent was the thief being crucified right next to Jesus. Again, see Luke chapter 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed justly, 
for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So upon his repentance and his asking, that thief was granted forgiveness right there on the spot. And of course, all of us since then who have repented and believed in Christ have been granted his forgiveness. The same pattern applies to us. We can make the first promise of forgiveness on our own. We can have an attitude of forgiveness. We should make the decision to do this. The rest depends on the other person's repentance. As we wait, we can be patient. If appropriate, we may be able to talk to the other person about their sin or seek the involvement of others in the church to help resolve the matter. And once the other person repents, we can grant forgiveness, making those other three promises. So, in summary, forgiveness is an active decision to make four promises. Number one, I will not dwell on this incident. Number two, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. Number three, I will not talk to others about this incident. Number four, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Forgiveness is a decision. It's not a feeling, it's not forgetting, and it's not excusing. And at least for promise number one, it's something we can do before there is even repentance, just like Christ did. So that brings us to our last question. We've already talked about how Christ forgave us. We've talked about what forgiveness is. Now let's zoom in and get really practical. How can we forgive? More specifically, how can we build a culture of forgiving one another in our church? To see this, let's go back to our text, starting with Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So our text actually tells us everything we need to know about the how. Four things to think about here. Number one, we must overcome barriers to forgiveness. The barriers are the words right there in verse 31. The things that Paul says we must put away. Look at them. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. These are all things we can be tempted to when someone has wronged us directly. They are ways for us to take payments on the debt that the sinner has incurred with us rather than make those payments. It begins with our thoughts and our state of mind. Bitterness, wrath, and anger. Put another way, we get in our feelings about what the other person has done. A negative loop of, uh, a feedback loop of negativity arises. We start pumping ourselves up about how terribly the other person has behaved. And as we keep thinking these thoughts, gradually the other person gets uglier and uglier and uglier and more irredeemable in our mind's eye. And we start to appear more righteous to ourselves. Eventually, our thoughts spill over into our words. In verse 31, the word clamor can also be translated shouting or harsh words. Slander, the word slander is literally evil speaking, speaking evil of someone else. At some point, if we're thinking these thoughts, we can't help it. We have to tell others. Maybe it's just a snarky comment or a roll of the eyes. Maybe it's a more deliberate attempt to damage someone's reputation, to make them pay for what they've done to you. And that leads us from words to deeds, to malice, evil behavior, taking matters into your own hands, 
seeking revenge by trying to directly harm someone. This may seem unlikely, but if you let thoughts fester and they make their way into your language, action is the logical conclusion. Bitterness is where it begins. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 commands us to see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. If we let the root of bitterness spring up, it will grow and grow and grow until it consumes us. As one person famously put it, bitterness is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. So forgiveness may cost us, but not forgiving will ultimately cost us much, much more. So ARC, where's your root of bitterness most likely to spring up? What are your triggers? Evidence of a certain spouse's habit, like leaving unwashed dishes in the sink? Is it writing a monthly check to cover the cost of caring for an elderly parent, one that you know is bigger than the check your siblings are writing? Is it running into a married couple, one of whom you used to date? Is it seeing a person across the auditorium on a Sunday and wondering if he still doesn't realize how much what he said that day hurt you? What do you do with that? Sometimes you need to confront the sin and talk about it. Sometimes you don't. But regardless of that, everyone can make that first promise of forgiveness unilaterally. I promise not to dwell on what happened or seek vengeance or retribution in thought or word or action. I don't want to minimize how hard this is. We simply can't do it without God's help. We can't do it if we're led by our feelings. Remember, forgiveness is an active decision made despite the way we feel. In his book, Ken Sandy talks about something called the replacement principle. He writes, it is very difficult simply to stop thinking about an unpleasant experience. Instead, we must replace negative thoughts and memories with positive ones. Every time you begin to dwell on or brood over what someone has done, ask for God's help and deliberately pray for that person or thinking, think about something of the offender that is positive. You can apply the same thing to words and deeds as you go out of your way to speak well of the person and even to be kind to them. And a funny thing happens when you do that. Feelings start to follow actions. God helps change our hearts when we take those first steps in faith. So the replacement principle is some practical advice we can all use as we struggle to forgive. But we must overcome those barriers to forgiveness. That's number one. Number two, we must be, you see it right there in the text, kind and tender-hearted in our reaction to sin. This is true whether the sin is directly against us, in which case we're doing the forgiving, but it's also true if the sin is against someone else. When you're discipling someone and they're confessing the sin and you're helping them deal with it, at its most basic level, this begins with recognizing that there will be lots of sin in the church that needs to be dealt with. We might be tempted to think that because we're Christians, because we're forgiven by Christ, we might behave better with each other. And that in a good church, there would be less sin to deal with. Now, in one sense, we would hope that would be true. The gospel changes us. It causes us to behave differently and better. In the course of our Christian walks, we should aim to sin less and follow Christ more. But the Bible is very clear that on this side of heaven, we should expect to stumble a lot. It doesn't matter how healthy a church is, how strong its theology is, how strong its community is. 
It is a church full of sinners awaiting their ultimate redemption. And so there will be lots of sin to deal with and a great need for forgiveness. Paul basically takes this as a given. He just assumes there in verse 32 that of course there will be a need for forgiveness. And this is in a letter to a church that isn't experiencing any particular problem at the moment. So we shouldn't be surprised when we encounter sin in the church. And perhaps more important, we shouldn't make others feel ashamed when they stumble. Accountable, yes. Loved, supported, yes. But ashamed, no. Shame is the devil's tool for keeping sin secret. Shame tells us that we should deal with our sin by hiding it away rather than confessing it. And the lie that a church should be a sinless place is one that the devil tells to promote that sense of shame. So how does Paul tell us to approach sin in the church? Again, he uses those two words in verse 32. Be kind to one another, he says. Be tenderhearted. Another word in some translations is compassionate. Compassion means putting ourselves in the shoes of others. Try and understand what's going on with them and why they might have sinned. This is not to excuse sin. It doesn't make forgiveness any less necessary, but it does allow us to see the whole person and to determine how best to help them. Sometimes we can intervene right away. Sometimes it takes patience and time. You know, about 10 years ago, I made a Christian friend at work. Uh, He would go on to be one of my best friends. We were in each other's weddings. We still keep in touch, even though he and his family have moved away. When we met, we were both Christians, but it was pretty evident to me that he was making some questionable day-to-day choices. I was a pretty young Christian myself, so I was still pretty new at this whole discipling thing. I didn't even know that that was what we were doing. So at first, I just focused on getting to know him better. Over time, as we became friends, he grew a lot. Years later, he told me that this approach had been just what he needed. There were other folks at church, he said, who had come in really aggressively with their discipling of him, immediately asking about and interrogating his choices before they really had built a relationship that could bear those stresses. But you didn't do that, he said. And it really made a difference so that when you did start asking those questions, I was ready to listen. Now, I really wish I could take credit for my brilliant discipling strategy. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was just that I was a younger Christian at the time. I was pretty new at this. But I've tried to remember that ever since as I've gotten older. When you're discipling someone, whatever the maturity gap is between you and the person you're spending time with, try to put yourself in their shoes. Is your approach to discipleship one that begins with listening and seeing the whole person? Or does it run the risk of being aloof or even self-righteous? James 1.19 says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's a good rule when you're in conflict with someone, but it's also a good rule when you're discipling them and helping them in their struggles with sin. There's one broader application here as well of this idea of being kind and tenderhearted. How did you react the last time you heard about a serious sin by someone else in the church? Were you shocked? Did you ask to yourself or out loud, how could they have done that? Or did you say to yourself, I know exactly how they could have done that. The same way I could have done that. The same way everyone else here could have done that. How we react to news of sin will define our culture, ARC. Whether it's the person confessing and asking us for forgiveness, a person confessing and asking for help, or secondhand information 
about someone else's sin. When we hear about sin, will our reaction be one of understanding or one of shame? A culture of understanding is one where we know that forgiveness is needed every day. So we have to recognize the need for forgiveness and be kind and tenderhearted in our approach to sin. Third thing, we must be quick to confess our own sins, to repent and to ask for forgiveness. So this is what puts the other in one another. It will be much harder to create a culture of forgiving one another if we don't also have a culture of confessing to one another and of being vulnerable with one another. Do you think you might have unconfessed sin? It's worth praying about. It's worth asking others about. After all, your own heart will have a vested interest in telling you that you have nothing to apologize for. So Ken Sandy has a list for this one too. It's something he calls the seven A's of confession. Some of the A's are a bit of a stretch, but there are seven, there are seven things here. First, address everyone involved. If you sin, you've sinned against God, so start there. Then consider who else is affected or who even bore witness to the sinful act. These are the people you'll need to confess to. Second, avoid three words, if, but, and maybe. We've all done this before, and we've all heard it before. I'm sorry if I did anything to hurt you. I know I shouldn't have lied to you, but it was for a really good reason. Maybe I should have asked you before borrowing your clothes. What do all these words have in common? All of them rob the confession of its power. They make it a non-apology. So avoid those qualifiers, if, but, and maybe. Make your confession real. Third A, admit specifically. The more you can pinpoint the specific words you said or the specific actions you took and play them back to the person you're confessing to, the more likely they are to believe your repentance is genuine. Fourth, acknowledge the hurt. Again, compassion matters here. Put yourself in the other person's shoes. You've just named this thing you did. How did it make them feel? What effect do you think it had on them? Can you play that back to them? Acknowledge that you understand that. Fifth, accept the consequences. This is the flip side of what we said about consequences when we were talking about forgiveness. Just because there's forgiveness doesn't mean there won't be consequences. And if you're confessing, you should show that you're ready to accept them. Um, it's kind of like the prodigal son. He was asking his father for forgiveness. And in Luke 15, 19, he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. In his mercy, the father did not actually impose that consequence, but it was important that the son knew he deserved it and was willing to say so. Sixth, alter your behavior. How do you plan to change in the future? Can you tell the person what you plan to do as part of your confession? And then finally, seventh, ask for forgiveness and allow time. Ask clearly, but don't pressure the other person. If you've done it right, you'll be able to say with a clear conscience that the ball is now truly in their court. These things are all worth doing, even when you know or believe that the other person also has sins that they need to confess, regardless of whether they do so, regardless of whether your sins are bigger or smaller than theirs, you can take the first step toward reconciliation by examining yourself and confessing your sins. Imagine if each person in our church body did this today. If each of us identified just one sin that you know you need to confess 
and confess to the person or to the persons that you've wronged. Imagine the hurts that would be ended, the misunderstandings cleared up, the processes of reconciliation begun. Imagine the floodgate of forgiveness that would open as many of us are forced to rethink our assumptions and let go of our bitterness. I can think of no more fitting witness to the power of God and of his gospel than to see a virtuous cycle of confession and forgiveness among all the members of his church. And that brings me to my fourth and final point about how to forgive. We must rely on God and look to Christ to find the strength both to forgive and to repent. I've said it a few times now. Forgiveness is costly. So is repentance. We have to make an active decision to do either. And we have to draw our strength from the Lord to follow through. Uh, So during World War II, there's a story that exemplifies this. A woman named Corrie ten Boon was a Dutch Christian who was imprisoned in a concentration camp by the Nazis. After the war, she traveled the world and she testified about God's love and how it had sustained her through that ordeal, even as she lost both her sister and her father in the prison where she was. In her book, The Hiding Place, she describes the first time she met one of her jailers after the war, one of the men who had been responsible for the pain and anguish and death of her family. She ran into him at a church service in Germany just after she had finished speaking. This is what she writes. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl about the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. So I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on him. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. By forgiving us, Christ gives us the example of what we should do. By that action and by binding us together as a church, he gives us the reason to do it. But amazingly, along with the command, he gives us the love itself. He gives us the power to forgive. Every story of forgiveness is a miracle. But every story of forgiveness, no matter how amazing it is, is just a reflection of the most amazing forgiveness story of all. The story of a perfect God, estranged from his rebellious people, who rescued them by sacrificing his only son. The story of that son, even as he gave up all the rights and privileges of being with his father, even as he was mocked and scorned and beaten and crucified, 
crying out to God to forgive those who at that very moment were murdering him. The story of the hell he endured for three days as he paid the price, not just for the sins of those who were there that day, but for all who would trust and repent and believe in him. And the story of each new sinner who listens to that call, whose eyes are opened and who finds new life in him. If Christ could forgive under those circumstances, can we not also forgive? If no sin is too great for him, can any sin possibly be too great for us? Let's pray together and ask him for the power to forgive. Heavenly Father, when we read of stories of forgiveness, we are amazed by your work and the lives of those doing the forgiving. And we know that we cannot forgive without your divine power. And so we pray, even as we think about what your word has exposed us to today, that you might motivate us to forgive, that you might give us power to forgive, that there would be a culture of forgiveness here, that we would follow your command to forgive one another each and every day, that through that, um, your image would be glorified, that through that, many more would come to know you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.